take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. We're continuing our study on idolatry. So far we've been talking about responding to the idolatry in our own lives. Tonight we're going to talk about responding to it in the lives of others. Acts 17, great passage. We're just going to look at a couple of the verses. And Paul's in Athens. Acts 17, verse 16 and 17. It reads, Now, while Paul, Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. We're going to talk about that word. We'll come back to it. Within him, as he saw, key word also, that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Athens, if you know anything about it, in the first century was the cultural capital of the world. It would be kind of like New York City today. Um, well, actually, it'd be more like Oxford, Harvard, Yale, Duke, and, and surrounded by New York City all in one. It used to be the power capital of the world, but they were taken over by the Romans, and so um, they're not that any longer at this time. But it was a center for art, athletics. Um, it had one of the largest sports stadiums of the known world that time. It was the original place where the Olympics began. A great, huge place on sports and athletics. I mean, a lot of the really parallels between them and America are quite stunning. The question is that Paul engaged in, and we want to engage tonight, is how do we respond to the idolatry and idolaters in our culture? How do we do that? Because our, if our theme, Go to Grow, is going to be lived out in our culture, we're going to face scenarios just like this. So I want to show you a very simple outline tonight. Four parts of the model or pattern that Paul gives us about how to confront and evangelize a culture given over to idolatry. So let me give you all four of them, and uh, the first two we'll spend the most time on. But we'll note four things. Number one, where he went, if you're taking notes. Number two, how he felt. Number three, what he saw. And lastly, number four, what he said. All right, we're going to do all four of those. Where he went, how he felt, what he saw. What he said. Let's unpack them just one at a time tonight. Where he went, you can see it in the verse for yourself in verse 17. It says he went two places. He went to the synagogue because his pattern was Romans 1 to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And it's about as literal as you can get in this passage because he does exactly that. He goes to the Jew, so he has to go to the synagogue and devout persons, meaning people who were Gentiles that had kind of converted to Judaism, and those were devout people like Cornelius in Acts 10 and so forth and so on. So he goes there first because that's his pattern, and so he goes to the synagogue where Jewish people are, and then he goes to the marketplace. Um, I thought that was very crucial. Let me tell you a couple things why. If you're going to go to grow, if we're going to reach people with the gospel, you're going to go places that you feel comfortable, and Paul would have felt very much at ease in a first century synagogue situation. He grew up in it. He was the master of it. So for him, it'd be like going to church, really. So it would be going to a place he was very... But going to the marketplace was quite another thing. In fact, 
If you were a devout Jew, you probably stayed out of most, if not all, of the marketplace if you could possibly help it. Um, And that was not a place that they frequented very often. So when you are willing to go, and in doing so you confront an idolatrous culture, you have to be willing to go places that you're very at home at and places that you feel about as far from home as possible. But here's the thing. Going includes this. Not just reaching all people, but all kinds of people. Paul went to the synagogue to reach Jewish kinds of people. And he went to the marketplace to reach Gentile kinds of people. The Jews worshipped the right God. The Gentiles worshipped worship false gods. But the truth about all of them were that they needed Jesus. And so he knew all they needed. So he went both places. And he, here's the thing. And he always does it in every city intentionally, purposely. Can I say it this much? He planned it. Now, I know this doesn't sound spiritual, But can I tell you that most of your Christian life, if it's ever going to amount to anything, will be because you do what you do intentionally. It's not that I just pick up my Bible when I feel like it, or pray when I feel like it, or come to church when I feel like it, or I witness when I feel like it. You know what you have to do? You have to plan it. He did that. In every city, he would always go to the synagogue, and then he would go to the marketplace or the places around where people were, and he did it intentionally. Now, here's what I found, and and I don't know if you feel this way, because maybe it's, I'm not trying to pat, it may be harder for me, because you don't probably get the, in some ways, privilege I have. I I work around Christians all day long in a church setting, so I don't have, I don't go to a place where everybody, most everybody doesn't know the Lord. So you know what's hard for me? If I don't intentionally say, I'm going out of here and meeting with so-and-so for lunch, and if I don't go down there and talk with them, and I don't go someplace, guess what? I won't talk to anybody about Jesus, and days, weeks could pass, and I won't do it. You know why? Because there, there isn't much opportunity here at church, right? So what happens? Well, you have to go out into the places where you don't normally go. You have to go out in places that you're uncomfortable with. So we're talking in the office all the time. I used to love when I was down at um, Mosaic Baptist Church because three times a week I went to the shower trailer. All you got to do is pull up the shower trailer, put out a chair in front of the shower trailer and sit there and you can talk to people about the gospel all day long. You give them a buy drink, and we used to have those, and we give them a buy drink, and they'd tell, and if you'd memorize their name and tell and memorize what kind of buy drink that they liked and call them by their name and gave them the one they wanted before they had to ask, I had at least 10 minutes to talk to them. Because they'd know that you remembered them and you cared. And so I could talk to people by the scores, invite them to church, go see where they are. People love that when you care about that. Now I, I'm wondering where is the soup kitchen line in Hamilton? There isn't one that I know of. It's hard to find. It's hard to find a place where hundreds of people go every day who are open to hear the gospel that you could just strike up a conversation. It's hard to find it. And the marketplace was that same thing. Now, on the screen, you put that slide there, Steve. This is what the marketplace in Athens looked like, okay? So you go in there, and let me tell you, I have a paper here. You can't, but it, it delineates what all these buildings are. And there are... 37 different things you could do in this marketplace, okay? And I'm going to list out all the things, not all, but some of them. When you went to the marketplace, this is not like going to the shopping mall. It's completely, there is no agora today. I wish there was because it would be perfect. 
You go in here, and if you were being sued or you went to take someone to court, that was in there. The judge was in there. The Bema seat was in there. If you wanted to go to a concert, they had concerts all the time in there. If you wanted to go shopping, I know how I can't, but see the long buildings on the top right, like a U-shape, and they had colonnades all around them? They're called stoas, and those were all full of shops. So you could go through there and they had shops and stores and people sold stuff. Now they didn't have the stock market, but people were constantly bartering and trading and stuff like that all the time. You could go there and there is a sports place there. Inside there are two different temples. So you could go to church in there. You could worship in there. You could buy your food in there. You could go to a concert in there. You could take someone to court in there. And they had, I mean, literally, if you wanted to do something, it was all in there. And so that's where Paul goes. He goes in there and all these stores and shops and temples and walks around. And, the, and you can see and they have a little thing there, um, smallest building. On the far left top side, they have, actually on the bottom left-hand side, altar of the 12 gods. And there were little altars everywhere, everywhere. Big temples, little altars. So in the story later on, he says, you even had one to the unknown God. Because Greeks were people who had a pantheon of gods, a whole bunch of gods, literally tons of gods, and in case they missed one, they didn't want to upset that god, so they made one to the unknown god, which was a catch-all god, in case you got missed and we don't know your name, and we have one for you. Now, he walks to this place, the Bible says, into a place that was very, probably not the easiest place for him to go to, and he starts giving the gospel. I love this scene, makes me think of the text in Proverbs 1, Let me read it for you. Wisdom calls aloud in the markets, in the streets. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in all the concourses, in the openings at the streets and the city gates. In other words, you know what wisdom does? It cries out everywhere. Where there's people, where there's lots of people gathering, wisdom cries out. First principle, can I give it to you tonight? We take the gospel everywhere because Jesus is Lord everywhere. So you know what your job is this week? You say, well, Pastor Walker, go. You know what go could be to you? Just go to work. Because there are all kinds of lost people there. People from all kinds of different nationalities. People all kinds of backgrounds. And they may be only one cubicle away. Right? But he said, we go everywhere. Why? Because Jesus is Lord everywhere. In this case, most deities in the Greek pantheon were regional or local, and there were certain gods who had territorial powers in this area, and they could do certain things here, here, and here. But when you crossed out of Greece and went into other ones, then they had their own set of gods. It'd be like America having gods, Mexico having gods, Canada has gods, and those gods didn't do anything unless you were in Canada, if you were in America. or You had to be in their places for them to be able to do anything. They had boundary lines. And what Paul says is, that my, not my God, he made heaven and earth and everything that's in God. My God's universal. And it blew their mind because they couldn't think of that concept. But Paul goes in there everywhere he goes and he reaches them with the gospel. Let me tell you this and I want to back it up with an illustration. I need your help. Your faith should affect Every part of your life. Every part. That's why he said, hey, I want to talk to people in the Agora. Because whether you're a philosopher, or whether you're a judge, or whether you're giving a concert, or whether you're in a shopkeeper, 
No matter what you're doing, here's what Paul says. I got a message for everyone. Because when God comes into your life, it should affect everything in your life. Someone, don't feel you have to be perfect. Someone give me a one-minute synopsis of the story of Naaman in the Old Testament. Just one minute. Just tell me as much as you know about it, what the main facts that you remember. Just raise your hand. Okay, Sandy, I think I saw you first. Go ahead. Can you, yep, stand up and say, oh, you are standing up. And you have a baby too, awesome. Okay, go ahead. Lysha. Gehazi, what happened to him? Uh, Gehazi actually ended up, um, Elisha, Elisha, by God's telling him, um, Elisha, um, Gehazi got the leprosy that the name had. Right, so they, Naaman got his leprosy cured, and Gehazi was deceitful, and so God gave it to him instead, right? What a, what a story of reversals, right? Okay, Sandy, I'm going to give you a chance, and if anyone else knows. So what was the end of the story? How did it end? Um, Naaman, Naaman went back and he, he had to um, get this the king or wherever he was had to um, um, rest on Naaman's shoulder to go to, to worship. And um, Naaman, Naaman did, I believe Naaman did it, but he knew of God of Israel was the true God. Right. That's really good because not many people remember that part. One detail she left out. Naaman went back after he got clean on the outside and the inside. He says, I know there's only one God. It's God of Israel. He even says that. So he's made new on the inside and the outside. He says he's going to go back to his own Syria, to his own king, and he's going to go into the temple. And the guy's going to, it's a security thing. He walks in as a security detail for the king in his country. When he goes to worship, he's there right next to him protecting him. He says, my king's going to worship in the god Ramon, which is the Baal of their country, basically. And what did Naaman say he was going to do? He, he, did, he, did, he went back, he was going to worship God only. And how did he prove it? What was the symbol of his singular devotion to God once he got, became a believer? Do you remember? Yes. That was good, Doreen. You guys should come up here and do the lesson. Um, he got two donkey loads of dirt. He took dirt from Israel back, and here's what he said I'm going to do. Every time I walk in with the king to be his security guard, he's going to bow down to his God, and I'm putting dirt on the floor in their temple from Israel, getting on my knees, and I'm going to bow down too, but I'm going to bow down on Israeli dirt because there's only one God. That's a cool story, isn't it? Now watch. When he got saved, Naaman did not say, you know what, Elisha, I don't want to go back. 
to Syria because they're pagans and they're idolaters back there and they worship false gods and I don't want to go back there. It'd be better for me and I'd feel so much better if I could just stay with you here in Israel. Did he, he didn't say that. You know why? Because when you get saved, the answer to idolatry is don't run away from it. He didn't run away from culture, nor watch. Nor did he go back and say this, oh, you know, I got to go back to Syria because it's my job. And you know what? It's my only livelihood. And it's where I made all my success. And when I go back, I'm going to be a Christian, but what? I'm going to privatize it. You know, it's a personal thing between me and God. And so God will understand when I go in to do my job that, you know, I'll just pretend like I'm worshiping, but on the inside, I won't. He didn't do that either, did he? You know why? Because both of them are not right responses to idolatry. It's not that we go back and get away from idolatry, cloister ourselves off in our little Christian ghetto and kind of get away from all the world and we don't have anything to do with anybody. The answer also isn't to go back into Syria and be like nothing ever happened and live the same way you did before. Both of those are wrong responses. And a lot of Christians are either one of those. Either they stay away from idolatry, they never go anywhere, do anything, and they think that spirituality is never being anything around anybody secular. And then there are people who are Christians that say, well, you know what, I'm a Christian, but nothing really changes. And I just go like in the world, and I'm the same at my job, I'm the same everywhere else, and I talk like the same, and I don't ever change or do anything different. Both of those are wrong. What did he do? Here's what he said, I'm going to do my job, but I'm going to do it with God at the center of it. So I'm going to go back, and I'm going to take this guy in, and I'm going to protect and watch over him, and when he kneels to worship his God, guess what? Bring in the dirt. I'm putting it on the ground. He kneels down. He says, hey, you worship that God, but I want you to know that's not my God. This dirt is the symbol of my God. My God's the God of Israel. And then he could tell his story about how God healed him on the inside and out. See, that's your job and mine, right? Our job is... Not to go to school or not to go to work and be just like everybody else and tell their jokes and talk like they do, act like they do, have their ethics, values, priorities, moral. No, we can't be like everybody else. And that's why, can I tell you, I don't think we make it much of an impact sometimes because we do the same things that the world does half the time. We miss for the same things. We don't come to church. We say, oh, you know what, God, I love you, but it really doesn't because something else can come up and we ditch God first off. That's just what the world does. You know, we always cry, oh, you know, Catholics don't have the truth, and look what's going on in their church. But you know what? How are we different sometimes in this way? Listen, you know what they do? They go to church on Sundays out of duty, on Sunday morning, and then forget about them all week. Do we not do that? I mean, or is he really part of our lives? And here's what Paul says. You know what? I go into the Jewish places, and I go into synagogues, and I do it intentionally. You know why? Because I want to tell these people that when you have God through Jesus Christ in your life, it affects every single thing in your life. So we need to take some dirt with us. Can I say it that way when we go to work? We need to take some dirt with us when we go to school, and when we have friends over and invite our neighbors over, and we talk to people, we need to make sure we take the dirt with us. Because we're always Christians, and it should affect everything in our lives. I'll never forget all the years I did Department of Transportation and the Department, you know, all the Bible studies downtown, and how I would walk in, and then on my way out, I'd take the stairway down, the outer stairway, the security stairways, and, and then I'd find, on one of the landings, I'd find Muslim people and their knees praying on mats. 
And I'm saying, here's people who are believing a false, at times, violent religion. But here they are. You know what, you know what was real about it for them? They took it to work. They took their mat. They took their dirt. Not, sanctif- not, not the right one, but they took it. And they were saying this. Hey, I go to work, but I don't leave Allah at home. Five times a day, if you're Orthodox, you pray if you're Muslim. And they said, hey, those times happen to have during work. So guess what? I go on the stairway and I pray. And I thought, you know what? I don't believe that religion at all. But I can't tell you. I think sometimes they've got it more on the ball than we do. Right? Because they're serious about it. And they take their stuff with them. They take their stuff. So here's what, where did he go? He went to both places, easy and hard places intentionally, because everything affects our faith. Secondly, how he felt. Look at the verse in verse 16. It says, he, is, he was provoked. It says in verse 16, if you go back to Acts 17, 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them, his spirit was provoked within him. The word provoke means to be sharp and therefore to irritate. It's the same word we quote in the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not easily provoked. In other words, it's not easily become irritated. It's the Greek word we get the English word paroxysm. I know you don't know that one because I didn't either. It means a sudden attack of emotion. So Paul's standing and looking at the agora and all the idolatry going on. In other, in other words, the more he thought about it and the more he looked at it, he got a sudden emotional attack of, and it's the same word used in the Septuagint of the Old Testament to describe God, how God feels in his heart when he saw his people committing idolatry. It means he's two things. Negatively, he's angry, and positively, he's jealous. It's both. He's angry because he knows it's a false god and it's going to destroy them. And number two, he's jealous because they ought to be worshiping him. And that word has both of those in it. So let me tell you what I think the passage is saying. Ready? You, can't, you cannot see like Paul saw. You cannot speak like Paul spoke until you feel like Paul felt. You can't see like he saw. And you can't speak like he spoke until you feel like he felt. And I am more and more convinced all the time that God's people do not go and we do not witness faithfully. And the problem is on the inside. And it's not fear of what people might think. It's not that we don't have enough Bible knowledge. It's that we don't have the chances, opportunity, because we don't feel like those things like Paul felt. We don't see our world and the things in it to the point where it provokes us, till it, like an attack emotionally on our own system on the inside. You have to have both of those, the anger and the jealousy. Loving zeal, holy jealousy, here's why. If you're not provoked, you won't have courage, which covers all the excuses, I'm afraid, blah, blah, blah. But listen, if, you only, if you're only provoked anger-wise, and you don't have jealousy, you won't have the compassion. So here's Paul looking out, and he says, I'm provoked, and it makes him angry. So it moves him. He's not going to just stand there. He's going to do something. And, but when he does it, it says, here's the word. He reasons with them, and the word is the English word to dialogue. So he doesn't go up there and just bash him in the face and say, you get saved, you're rotten idolater, because you're going to hell. He doesn't say that, although it's true. He says he has conversations with people. 
He uses their own poets. He thinks through things about how he can present the gospel in a way that they might want to listen to it. So he does both. Case in point, you ever, watch, you, ever, you ever read John chapter 11? Jesus is late, of course, to Lazarus' death, and then he doesn't make the funeral, and so these people are supposed to be close friends, and the Bible says multiple times that he loved them, and so he, they're wondering, like you and I wonder, if that happened to us, he loves us, what in the world, why wasn't he here? And so two different times, Mary and Martha, I think I have this right, Martha meets him, and I've seen it, there's a little place that has a well right before you get to their town of Bethany. And so the, they probably stop there, get a little refreshment before they walk the last part to where they lived. Martha is waiting for Jesus this whole time, and she, she's already at that little place outside. She comes up to Jesus, and Mary and Martha, if you read this passage, John 11, they ask the same question. Does anyone know what the question was? Yeah, if you had been here, my, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, they asked the same question. Did you ever notice this? And you ever want... Jesus doesn't do the same thing in response. To Martha, right, who's the worker and the hard, you know, the kind of the bolder one, so to speak. You know what? She asks them that kind of stuff, right? And he says, he talks to her and tells her straight truth. He says, listen... I'm the resurrection life. If you would believe your brother, no, he's dead, and yet shall he live. That whole spiel, he gives her the whole message, the whole truth of it. And so she asks the question, and he responds by talking to her. But when he gets to Mary, who's still at the house, does he go through that whole speech and give the same thing to her? No. When it says he walks up and Mary's there, and she is there, and all she's crying. She's lost it. So what does he do? Does he talk? No, he goes to the tomb, and what does it have? The famous word that if you have never memorized one scripture, you have this one down. Jesus wept. Can I tell you, listen, that's what Paul's talking about. See, Paul says, I'm provoked, and so was Jesus. And the word says, when he saw that Lazarus was dead, it made him angry. It's the word, he's angry. And so he tells truth. So sometimes we respond to our daughter and we speak truth to them. And then the other time, same exact question, he has tears. So, so truth and tears. You know what? Because Jesus is the perfect evangelist. And we have, our, we have people in our church and other places. Listen, we, we, someone says, this is what happened, and you try to defend Jesus, and you're arguing. And I'm going to a little commercial already time out. Most of us should not do anything on Facebook or social media, please stop. Because most of the stuff I see people doing and some of our people, you are not helping the cause. Stop. Because you know what we do? We speak the truth and most of the time it's obnoxious. Really, it is. Political and otherwise obnoxious. But Jesus speaks, speaks the truth into it, right? But other time, truth, and then he has tears. You know why? Because he has courage and he has compassion. That's what we need in our world. Courage and compassion. Jesus had both of those. And so it says in the text, that feeling and that, that reasoning in his mind moved him to dialogue with people. So watch. Where he went, how he felt, three, what he saw. The Bible says he saw the whole city 
full of idolatry. And the word see in the Greek is not the word that you normally get to see things normally. It's a word that literally is translated theater. It means to see way beyond what's on the surface. It's kind of looking underneath it. So he looks at the agora and the people dancing and the people in the courtroom and the shops and the businesses and all the temples and all the things. He looks at all that and you know what he sees? You know what's behind all of it? Idolatry. Idolatry. It's behind all of it. And he can see that. He doesn't just walk into a doctor's office and only see medical stuff. He sees what's going on with the medical stuff and the money that's being made and poor people being taken advantage of and the idolatry that moves it all. He sees it all. So Paul goes into the marketplace and he sees this, that the problem with idolatry is that not that good things take the place of bad things, but good things have become first things. And idolatry, even in Christians' lives, are not because things are bad to have a shop and to have trades and to have, you know, be a theater in there or to have a courtroom. Those are not bad things. But why are they idolatrous? Because the bad things, the good things, have become first things. And that's what we have to fight against. Can I tell you this? That's why it aches in my heart to see parents and their kids grow up and say, you know, it's not the bad things that take us down most of the time. It's the good things that we have made first things in our lives. And we are not able to see the gods, I couldn't, behind the sports that we say that we play. It was a god to me. And the education that we give our lives to, not because education is a bad thing, we have faith Christian school. But it can become a god because we're betting our entire future on it. Working out at the gym and looking good and being muscular and trimmed. See, we can go in there and say, oh, this is just a place where people work out. Or no, this is the place they go to worship because that's their God. It's their idol. Materialism and stuff and brand name this and the pleasure of that and all those things. See, those things at the mall and otherwise, they're not just shops and we just go get stuff. But if we have eyes to see, Paul says, see what's behind it. It's the idolatry that drives it. And people are missing out on the true God because they've substituted a false god in his place. So where he went, how he felt, what he saw, and what he said. I love this last part. He goes into those places, if you look and I'll close. He says in Acts 17, so he reads in the synagogue with them, the marketplace, and with some of the philosophers. If you go down a little bit farther, farther in verse 18, he was preaching Jesus to them. He didn't preach the Lord. He didn't preach Christ. 72 times in the book of Acts, he uses Jesus' personal name. You know why? Hear me out. Because when we witness to people, we're not primarily trying to win arguments. We're not trying to get them to believe how stupid they are and how smart the gospel is. We're not trying to prove to them that evolution is wrong, although we might talk about that. You know what we're telling them? This isn't a doctrine we're trying to get them to agree to. It is a person that we're trying to have them believe in. And that person is Jesus. And you know what? And they see him or they don't in the way that you and I conduct ourselves and how we dialogue with them, talk with them, and love them, and care about them. And they know that we're just out not to do our little notch on our gospel gun belt and say, woo, another person for the Lord. 
They can see beyond that. You know that, right? They need to know that we care and that we're preaching a person and not just a precept or a principle. It's time for us to go, literally tonight, and for real. Go to grow, but we have to. We will never see like he saw, feel like he felt, right? Unless we do what he did and say what he said. None of those are possible if Jesus isn't the center of everything. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to go this week. It's not just going. It's going like Jesus. It's going like Paul did. Provoke us. Help us to have a heart that's provoked by the idolatry that surrounds us to the point where we're not capitulating to it. We're not compromising with it. We're different. But not just different to be odd. Not odd. God different. Different in a way that shows them there is a God that loves and satisfies and delights us in a far different way than anything this world has to offer. May we live that kind of life that courage and compassion might mark our evangelism like it did Jesus. Truth and tears help us to be that person from the inside out for your glory and for the sake of the gospel. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.